0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.
1: Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex
2: Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.
0: Hey, everybody. Well, we're starting the new year with a, a great one for once. Heather Cox Richardson joins me to talk about her New York Times best-selling book Democracy Awakening. You might know Heather if you're one of the millions of subscribers to her daily Substack, the most popular one in America, and if you listen to this one today, you'll understand why. In our conversation, Heather says, "We are on a knife's edge." meaning that we could go either way this year. I'm talking about the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, November 5th. Yikes. You know, while uh, Trump was president, I, I was always very careful not to use words uh, about him like, like like fascist. Because fascism is, and I quote, a far-right authoritarian political ideology characterized always by an authoritarian leader, forcible suppression of opposition, and a belief in a natural social hierarchy. And I don't remember where I got that, but it seems right. Anyway, even when I was tempted, I, I was always careful not to use the word fascist about Trump. But Trump's rhetoric these days is making it hard to avoid the word because uh, he's been going to the language of blood poisoning. He has said several times now that the people coming across the border are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. And I got that straight from Trump's mouth. Unless PBS and MSNBC were using the, the same AI app. To create this and they're not because uh, he's been repeating it he's using Adolf Hitler's language in Mein Kampf Hitler wrote all great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning so what Trump is saying is pretty much exactly the same as as Hitler immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country Now, Trump defended himself a couple weeks ago by saying, I never read Mein Kampf. So how could he know he was echoing Hitler? Well, the not having read part is uh, completely believable because uh, one thing I think we know about Trump is that he's not much of a reader. I don't think he's read any of the books he supposedly wrote himself, much less Mein Kampf. If Trump we're in a book club with Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn and Roger Stone, and they were supposed to read Mein Kampf that week. You know that Trump would be the one who who didn't who didn't do it. You don't have to read Mein Kampf to know that Adolf Hitler hated Jews and thought that they poisoned the Germans' blood. Now I I want to take Hitler to task. All great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning. Hey, Jews got some pretty heavy creative hitters. Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Paul Simon, Leonard Bernstein, Larry David, Barbara Streisand, Norman Lear, Mel Brooks. A lot of Jews have been creative because we're crafty and we control show business. Point is, look at what Hitler did for Germany. By the time he shot himself, the country was in absolute ruin. Eight million Germans died, including Hitler, of course. The Nazi culture died out for a totally different reason than blood poisoning. They allowed themselves to be led by a madman. Of course, we know who Donald Trump is. He is a fascist. And we'll prove it if he's elected again. We are on a nice edge at this moment. Which brings us back to my guest, Heather Cox Richardson. We really do have a great one today. You know, finally. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen, that's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations, and delivered with conversation based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Fuhrer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Fuhrer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, Spell B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Do we have a, um, a trajectory here you want to cover?
0: Not really. I'm going to kind of go all... This could be sloppy and go all over the place. That's what I do. That's fine. Is that all right?
1: That's fine. And how many minutes?
0: Oh, I don't know. 40? <laughs> Whatever. I don't, I don't Whatever. care. Yeah. I, I
1: don't care. But, but obviously, I will try and bring it in for a landing at about the right time if you tell me what that time is.
0: Okay. Well, uh, we'll feel it, I guess, maybe. Okay. All right. I hope, good. if I'm good.
1: Which is, <laughs> well, it's,
0: it's, it's a 50-50 proposition. First of all, congratulations on the book, Democracy Awakening. It's a New York Times bestseller, which is uh, not a surprise, right? You weren't shocked by that.
1: Well, it's always a bit of a surprise for a historian, I think, to find themselves on any bestseller list. Um, so, so you know, and, and as a writer, you never know if what you've written is any good. And this book is no exception. I, I repeatedly told my agent we should pull it because it wasn't worth publishing. So I think that's just part of the of the hazards of the trade.
0: You must have a team that reads your stuff and says – uh, no, this is great. <laughs> and You'd be crazy. And, and you, you rewrote 80% of the book or something like that at one point, right?
1: I did. After I wrote the initial draft, the, it was originally just supposed to be the answers to all the questions that people ask me every day, organized around the larger question of how did we get here? What does this moment mean and how we get out? And I wrote the, all the chapters and I sort of threw them into a file and I didn't look back because I was doing so much other stuff. I knew if I started to look back and rewrite as I went, I would simply never get out. So when I did go back to reread the entire manuscript after taking a break, a break of about three or four months, it told me a very different story than I expected it to, which, by the way, is really cool and is something yeah. much like being a teacher where, you know, you, you can teach people a bunch of stuff, but then they take those ideas and they create something new. And it felt like that's what the book did. Because when I went back to it, what I saw was the story of how um, authoritarians can use language and history to destabilize and then destroy democracy then how they can turn that into a movement. But crucially, that gave me the final piece of the book, the final third of the book, which I think is by far the most interesting, which is how you reclaim democracy, turning those tools on their head. So yeah, it ended up being entirely rewritten. And yes, I do have people who read my work, one poor, long-suffering friend who I feel like he probably just has a template that says, yes, Heather, it's a book. But then I also have a woman who reads me now who has just an absolutely unerring eye for what people are going to want to read and what they are not going to want to read. And she early on said, yeah, it's good.
0: I, I want to get into the substance of the book. And, and, and you write in your introduction, the key to the authoritarians is their use of language and false history. Right now, you're saying I've heard you say that we're in a nice edge coming up in this period right now because, um, well, we got Trump, right?
1: And Trump-like figures. I mean, one of the things I think it's important to remember is that Trump is not going to live forever, but he has created a template for other people to step in. And if you look at the 2025 project, it is not directed specifically to Trump. It's directed to Trump or a Trump-like figure.
0: In Democracy Awakening, we keep seeing patterns. And as a nation, we, we have periods where we lurch forward and lurch backward and lurch forward and lurch backward now appears to be a precarious moment, right? And I've heard you say that we're at a knife's edge, as I said, and it could go one way or another, and, and how important language is. Can we trace uh, how we got Trump? In the book, you write about the State of the Union address, where Trump announces that he's honoring Rush Limbaugh with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Limbaugh acts very surprised but he had done interviews before telling people that he knew he was getting it, right? So, what a weird thing to do to, to lie about not knowing this. But anyway, I always thought that Limbaugh, if it hadn't been for Limbaugh, maybe there'd be no Trump. And you also talk about the fairness doctrine, which was lifted in 1987. And Limbaugh started in 88. And he really, I think, was the first to take full advantage of getting rid of the fairness doctrine. And I think of him as like the big bang of the right-wing disinformation universe. Of course, there's McCarthy and others, but uh, to what extent is Rush and then the people that followed him enabled Trump to emerge?
1: All right. So Rush Limbaugh, of course, is an incredibly important figure. And you're right to identify that with the lifting of the Fairness Doctrine. But there's something in there that I just want to touch on before we do a, a line through of where this comes from. And that's that it it always strikes me as being worth remembering that Limbaugh did not start as a political shock jock. No. He started as a shock jock and discovered there was huge money to be made in the political shock jockness of it, if you will. I don't know quite how to say that. I think and that's and I'm really... It, yeah. I'm really interested myself these days in the link between money and I don't mean like like big oil money I mean entertainment money and where we are today there's a huge industry obviously now pushing the the radical right wing agenda which I th- I find just fascinating and am sort of trying to untangle right now but but the language issue is one that is identified immediately after World War II, and the problem for people who don't like the liberal consensus as it was known, that is a government that regulates business and provides a basic social safety net and promotes infrastructure and protects civil rights, is that that liberal consensus, that government, is really popular. It was popular then, it's popular now, and the the business people especially who wanted to get rid of the idea of government regulation recognized that if they continued to try and make their argument that they should go back to the days before the New Deal, as it was known, people weren't going to vote for it. So by 1951, William F. Buckley Jr. has written God and Man at Yale, Mm -hmm. or The Superstition of Academic Freedom, in which he says, you know, we can't keep arguing things based on, if you will, a reality-based community, although that's a much later term. We need simply to start from the point that you must have Christianity and you must have the free market economy. From that, then we can begin to talk about political economy, but we can't argue those things. Those need to be taken as if they were like the Ten Commandments, right? That, That has to be the bottom line. So from the very beginning of the 1950s, there was a concerted effort to use language in such a way that it tore apart what was this consensus among Americans, both Democrats and Republicans
0: because it was a consensus coming out of World War II where Republicans uh, were you know on board for investing in infrastructure, regulating the economy to protect people, having a safety net, all that kind of thing was there there was a consensus between. Republican and Democrats at that time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is the New Deal coming out of, the, of 1933 with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat, but it's really expanded, especially into civil rights, by, by Eisenhower in the 1950s to protect, you know, because it was really the Republicans at that point that stood for civil rights, much more than the Democrats who had their racist Southern wing to contend with. So this is a really popular idea.
0: And, and Eisenhower sent the troops to Little Rock. To uphold Brown,
1: right, right, in 1957, um, to to integrate uh, Little Rock Central High School, but so how do you how do you get rid of an idea that is that incredibly popular? And and I do want to point out that this is still popular. The liberal consensus is still popular. If you look, for example, at the number of people who want to have basic gun safety regulations. The statistics and the polls show that it's over 80% of us similarly people who want to protect abortion rights. You know, these are really high numbers in both parties. But the polarization that has convinced a political minority because they are a political minority that they must essentially overturn democracy to get their way really has been a question of using the right kind of stories, the right kind of language. And you you identified Rush Limbaugh although the pieces were all there before he began to broadcast, and they certainly went on to steroids after the Fox News Channel began in, I think it was 1996, right. the idea that there are good Americans who want to do everything for themselves and not you know, rely on the government for anything, and then on the other hand, there are those people. And those people are people of color, black people, um, women who want to work outside the home and want to have abortion rights, people who are looking for the government to protect basic civil rights. And those people, because their larger government will take tax dollars to enforce the kind of regulations and the kind of laws that the people want. Will be redistributing wealth from taxpayers to what, in this formulation, are non-taxpayers, and therefore it is a form of socialism or communism to let these people have voices. And there's a much deeper history to that that reaches back to the period after the Civil War. That formula, the idea that having a government that regulates business or protects civil rights is socialism, is one that was an incredibly powerful. Well, now it's
0: communism too. I mean, right. yes, the language. Has been upped. The anti has been upped.
1: Well, in Trump, you know, when he posts on social media talking about how the leftist Marxists are trying to go after him, it's like really, like what does that even look like in the 21st century?
0: Remember, he said this. He said uh, this is at his Veterans Day speech. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists. He puts fascists <laughs> and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. That was quite a sentence.
1: Well, right. And that's one of the things that historians really focused on because we know, and I could just sit here and reel off studies for you, that when people use language of bugs or rodents, that's a really huge red flag that you're moving closer and closer to dehumanizing your opponents in such a way that your supporters will feel comfortable taking that to the next step.
0: Yeah, well, vermin has been used by fascists for a long time, including, um, including Hitler.
1: What do you do with, 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 with insects? You exterminate them. I mean, there's a reason you use that language.
0: Well, now, I, I, I want to ask you about... You, we were talking about Rush, and then I was thinking about Breitbart and Alex Jones and, of course, Bannon, who said we're going to f- flood the zone with shit. And I know you don't use that word, and, and, and you use uh, an asterisk when you quote him in the book, which I think is very wise because you want a precocious 13-year-old reading your book And you don't want her mom or dad seeing the word shit in there and saying, don't read that. So you want every possible brilliant kid to read this book, which they should. You write about the alternative facts moment, which was one that I saw live, I think. And it was Kellyanne Conway talking to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press or something. Two days after Trump's inaugural, Trump had sent Sean Spicer out to say that his crowd, that Trump's crowd was bigger than Obama's, either of Obama's inaugurations, which was not true. <laughs> and, and it was demonstrably not true. Oh, easily, easily, easily demonstrably not true, including aerial footage of all these different uh, three uh, inaugurals. And I laughed when I heard alternative facts. I thought it was ridiculous. But then I put started to put it together with what Trump had said, fake news a lot, right? And I thought like, oh my God, fake news and alternative facts. Fake news was was his way of saying, there's all this fake news out there, mainstream media is putting out that's fake, and we have put out alternative facts. And I realized at that point that they were going for nothing's true, nothing's false, that you can't trust anything, and that that was their game. That is kind of what has happened in a way, is that we have a lot of Americans who either buy one side of it or the other side of it, and one side of it is is the Breitbart side.
1: Yes, but I think there's an important distinction to be made when we talk about First of all, the idea of a reality-based community in which many of us live, but that the Republicans don't have to be tethered to any longer, actually comes out of the George W. Bush administration. And a comment that was made to, I think at the time he's with the Wall Street Journal, but Ron Susskind, the journalist, by a member of the Bush administration. So as I say, this idea of creating your own reality through words has a very long history. But you just identified two things. And one is Steve Bannon flooding the zone with shit. And it's designed to do exactly what you identify, to destabilize people so that they can no longer tell what reality is. And they back away, either becoming apathetic or simply saying, I need somebody who's going to give me clarity again. And I don't care if that person is a strong man. I just want to know what's going on. I need to feel secure. I need to feel like there is something to hold on to, even if it doesn't reflect reality. But that's very different in a way than what people like Limbaugh were doing or people that are creating this idea that there are good Americans who, in this case, vote for the Republican Party and everybody else. And that is to create a false reality, not just flooding the zone so, you know, you just don't know what to think, but rather that you have a specific worldview that is not based in reality. And that distinction really matters because this goes to a larger political project.
0: Well, I'm not sure I understand that because it feels to me that putting out a false reality is the same thing because the false reality is the reality that basically argues for what Limbaugh is arguing for. That's, that, well, those are the parts of the reality that are put out there.
1: Ultimately, the, the goal is the same, but there is a difference between throwing out just everything on the table. So truth, lies, stories that don't matter, just so much stuff that's coming at you all the time you back away versus a very clear narrative that says, this is how you should think. They work together, but they are actually somewhat, not somewhat, they are separate techniques. And the reason that I'm emphasizing that that's there is because this is part of a political project that was articulated out of Russian political thinkers, Mm -hmm. although I have my suspicions that actually there was at least one American deeply involved in them. And that is a system for overturning democracy through a series of actions. And they have five primary actions, and those are two of them, flooding the zone with shit and creating a false reality. But there are others as well. There's the idea of running fake candidates who switch parties after they're elected and running candidates who have the same name as your opponent's name, so you split their votes. Now, we've seen both of those things in the last several years, especially coming out of Florida, but also you have to look at a couple of other states on that as well um there's a number of techniques that one uses and and actually the top one on the list that that we don't talk about in the United States although we have seen these techniques employed in other countries like Ukraine and Belarus for example when Russia was trying to take control of those former Soviet republics the top one on the list is blackmail which i think is really interesting cuz i suspect that if we dug deep we would find that has been employed here as well but the idea is to create a fake reality that people come to believe. They don't just, they don't just back away and say, ah, whatever, give me a strong man. They come to believe things that are not true. And they are wedded to those things. They, they no longer are willing to accept reality anymore. That is their reality. And therefore, they are willing to vote. Because remember, this whole idea is how you overturn a democracy without tanks and without guns. How do you get people to vote away their democracy, which makes no sense at all, The way you do that is you convince them of something, of a narrative that is not true. And they are willing to vote for a narrative that is not true and to vote away their own rights and put a dictator in place. And that political project is one that we have seen in other countries. We certainly are seeing it in the United States, but one of the things that fascinates me is what happens if that begins to work and it looks like everything's going well? Say, for example, you managed to put Donald Trump in the presidency in 2016, and it looks very much as if he is going to turn the United States into a dictatorship. What happens once people figure that out? You know, What do they do? Do they say, okay, this is fine, we'll live this way? Or do they use those same tools to restore democracy? And the, the research I'm doing now suggests that that's what they do. And that's the moment we're in now where people are taking these same tools that were used to overturn democracy to reinforce it. And I just find this absolutely fascinating.
0: What do you mean the same tools? You're, you're saying just putting out information that's accurate and, and are, are arguing that? I mean, that, does that work? Yes. That's what and, you're talking well, about.
1: I'm talking about accurate tools, but I'm also talking about the ones we use. So social media, for example, which was used with such weaponization in 2016, was wavering by 2020 in terms of the amount of stuff that was coming the other direction. And now people are very much aware of this. Now, that's not to say that the bad stuff has gone away. It's still there, but people are aware and fighting back about it. But more importantly, I think for me as as essentially a storyteller, People who care about democracy are defending it. They're stepping up to the plate and they're saying, wait a minute here, we're not going to turn all of our media over to the airwaves that talk about the individual fighting against this empire that's crushing them, the, that very powerful image that Republicans have used since the 1950s and that really took off in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan, by the way, right after Star Wars in 1977 made it you know, a, a global hit. But that we're talking about community and about caring for each other and about what it means to defend democracy and why those things matter. I think one of the huge turning points in the United States over the last five years was Alexander Vinman standing up on the floor of Congress and saying, here, right matters, because that's one of the first times I had heard that publicly articulated. Since really the nineteen you know nineteen sixty when there's a big change in, in American political campaigns, and um, Volodymyr Zelensky saying I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. You know those were game changers in the way that people thought about democracy.
0: I I, I just think that our side saying the truth and their side lying. I I I do think that. There's just about 70% of their side completely buys everything he says, right? I say that because 70% of Republicans who say they're going to vote believe that he won the election.
1: So the, the only caveat I would put there is, again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull on political scientists here. What they will tell you when you have the rise of a powerful right-wing reactionary movement, the number of people who are essentially in a cult, that is, they cannot be budged, is between 20 and 30%. So that's not to say that 70% of Republicans don't believe there were problems with the election. That doesn't be- mean that they wouldn't vote for him. But I'm drawing the distinction that for that 20 to 30%, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue
0: and uh, wouldn't lose their vote, but he'd be indicted.
1: And they would be convinced that it is uh, a
0: political uh, indictment. A- right, exactly. <laughs>
1: Can can you believe we're talking about this in the United States of America?
0: Um, well, it, it, it's hard to believe that Trump exists in a way. But I'm just trying to find what the predicates were, you know. And it is Buckley, and it is Reagan, and it is this guy. Th- this is the uh, the guy you you talked about who talked to Ron, Ron Suskind. It was Ron Suskind. Yeah. Okay. He says he said that Suskind's worldview was obsolete. That's not the way the world works anymore. We are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality judiciously, as you will, we'll act again, creating another uh, other new realities, which you can study, too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you all will be left to just study what we do. What a jerk.
1: What an incredible quotation, though, the, the sheer hubris of we are more important than the entire rest of the world. And that I think is is part of what's going on. And, you know, the idea of these two strands that run through America of some people who really, truly believe they're better than everybody else and have the right and maybe the duty to rule the rest of us and the rest of us who really do think that we all have a right to be treated equally before the law and that we have a right to a say in our government. It's all encapsulated right there.
0: Well, we have a history of that, and that's what your book is about, is the sort of the lurching forward and lurching backward that we've done through history. And you focus a lot on Lincoln and the moments that he stepped forward. Let let me uh, do one of those lurches, that lurch. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. What did that do? That basically, that was extending slavery to territories that heretofore had had not had slavery.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that was an enormous assault on basically the way we were operating and on our democracy. And Lincoln stood up against it and went to Cooper Union. And he he was called a radical. And anybody who was uh, for not extending slavery was considered a radical. And he defended himself at the Cooper Union saying that he was not a radical, but he was conservative, right? Right. And basically claiming conservatism for the Republican Party because they were preserving the Declaration of Independence.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: That You know, that all men are created equal <laughs> and endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And he... Said that that was in 1860, right? At Cooper Union, which is the year that he was elected president. Mm-hmm. And he stood up, and this is an amazing moment in our history because it obviously his election began the Civil War.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the, the South seceded. deciding to go, right.
0: So it's, I mean, they, they seceded before he was seated, right?
1: Right, I'm just, I'm just, you know, being a splitting—not uh, splitting hairs, but, but I firmly believe that it was not his election; it was the South. I want to give agency to the South, saying they were going to take their marbles and go home. The election was completely legit.
0: Oh no, 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 no! Of course, the legitimate election caused the South to secede because uh, they they wanted slavery.
1: Although, just a, just a sort of a historical footnote here that I think is interesting that. The, a number of the Southern states didn't even put the Republicans on the ballot that year. So he won a plurality nonetheless, even though the South didn't even bother to put him on the ballot. Is that right? Yeah. Also, another little thing that I think really matters here is that the Kansas-Nebraska Act, by enabling the elite Southern enslavers to take their, their then human property into those lands that had been declared free under the Missouri Compromise of 1820... That really matters because it's not just about, hey, we don't think this is a good idea to have enslavement spread because it will hurt the ability of average white workers, to men, to be able to go out and take up land because they won't be able to compete. Really important to remember that that would mean that all the new states that came in in the West would be slave states. So the the only thing that was holding back the elite Southern enslavers from taking over the entire country in the 1850s was that the North held the House of Representatives because it had so many more people than the South did. If you could have added a whole bunch of Southern states as the Kansas-Nebraska Act would have allowed, those Southern states would – I'm sorry, Western states would work with the Southern states – to overawe the House of Representatives and the power of the North there. And the entire United States would have become a slave country. And the the South was quite articulate about that was their goal. So it wasn't just, hey, I don't like this law. It was more- Of of course. We're going to get rid of American democracy altogether. So when Lincoln talks about the United States being the last best hope on earth for, or of earth for democracy- He's not messing around. This is not just rhetoric. He's saying, you know, we really need to protect democracy against an oligarchy that wants to destroy it.
0: And, and that's the issue that Americans get behind in the North, get behind to prosecute this war.
1: Right. And that's, that's why your comment about Lincoln repurposing the word conservative and reclaiming it for the idea of the Declaration of Independence is so incredibly powerful. And actually why I start with that is because once again, this is an issue of using language in such a way that it defines what this country is. And just that one use of the word conservative, I wanted to start with that in the book because of course, today's radical right wing, and they are radical, they want to destroy our country, is not conservative. Conservative sounds kind of like, oh, we're the ones protecting the past. And that's exactly what the elite enslavers said. And Lincoln stepped up and said, no, you don't. You're trying to get rid of democracy and take it all over for yourselves. We're the ones who are conservative because we're the ones who are defending the you know equality before the law and, and access to the ballot. And you know, sometimes I describe myself as a Lincoln conservative uh, and that, you know, people always look really askance at me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Everything I stand for is traditional America. Everything they stand for is radical. So let's go with traditional America.
0: Yeah. And I think people confuse this because Lincoln was liberal as well in, in the kind of parlance that we think. I mean, he did homesteads. I mean, he did a lot of great things that you would associate with, you know, the government doing stuff for people. I mean, he did homesteads, he did land-grant colleges. Let's let's talk about how you define these terms. But I mean, you say in your book that Lincoln would have done a lot of the liberal things in the, you know, 20th century and post-World War II liberal things, right?
1: Yes. And I'm just sort of being a jerk by suggesting that A government that acts of the people, by the people, and for the people, that is by providing free colleges, as the Republicans did during the Civil War, and the Transcontinental Railroad, and investing in farms and new bureaus to make sure people had accurate information, and enabling immigrants to come to the country more easily. And creating income taxes, progressive Mm -hmm. income taxes, are an invention of the Republican Party. That all of those things are part of being a conservative in this country. And I, I, yes, I'm. It's a bit of a short, short uh, shorthand, you know, a sleight of hand there that I'm doing. But yeah, the idea of a government that that actually responds to the people comes directly from Lincoln and from the Declaration of Independence. And he is the first president with his party. To use the government in such a way that it supports the idea that people starting out in society should have government support rather than simply assuming that you should make sure that people at the very top are protected in their property. And that thread runs through American history from that point through. I mean, the biggies that people know are Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt and FDR and Eisenhower. But it is really the centerpiece of America's most successful eras from that period on, which strikes me as being quite conservative to, uh, to try and bring that back, don't you think?
0: Yes, yes. It, it depends in the way that we talk about it, because if you think, I, I, I think that you say there is a consensus after World War II in America that um, we all believe in a social safety net Uh, that we all believe in government regulation of business, believe in in income taxes that are progressive. Those are kind of thought of today as your basic liberal policies. Yes. Okay. Yes. So so it, it, it kind of flips. I think of Lincoln as kind of a liberal populist kind of guy. But uh, what he did was very was he. He said he in in the uh, Cooper Union speech said it was conservative to stick with this tradition that we had, and and he spoke about you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and quoted our founders who weren't so liberal in a way. I mean, Jefferson had slaves.
1: Yeah, no, uh, the the point that I the only point that I'm trying to make certainly in this conversation and I think in the book as well is that the way that you protect democracy and the values that I think both of us really cherish are by the way you talk about them because that's how you change the way people think and ha- by changing the way people think is how you change the direction of our country. So, the reason I started out with the the very deliberate reworking of the word conservative is because in many ways, that's exactly what we need today, a reworking of what the concept of protecting this country means. And it does not mean banning books. And it does not mean turning us into a religious theocracy. It does not mean getting rid of child labor laws. It does not mean all the things that we did at our very worst. To me, it means bringing back the things that we did at our very best. And when I mean very best, I don't just mean things that are morally right, although in my opinion, they are. I mean things that are good for the economy and things that are good for stability and things that are good for individual opportunity. And those are the things that are embraced by people like Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt and FDR and people right up to the present where you have uh, the, the Biden-Harris administration trying very much to do the same thing and to do it based in their articulation uh, in Biden's primarily because of the economic benefits of that. And we can see those because the economy is simply roaring, but also in Harris's- well, quite the, powerful- economy, the
0: economy is roaring for some people. And we have to, you know for those people who are, are not getting the benefits of it, they may not see it that way. I, I agree with you. I, I love Biden's economic policies. And, and we have seen large growth in jobs. We've, and that is a continuation of what Obama did. And Trump would say he had the greatest economy in the history of the world. <laughs> when he, he actually created jobs at a slower pace than Obama did. I love what Biden did with the Rescue Act. But we've had inflation and it's hurt people. There are people who might be listening to this who are not as well off as they were a few years ago.
1: Inflation has certainly been a problem, although, again, we're bringing that in for a soft landing now, which is precisely what the economic model suggested would happen and did not get the coverage that the administration, of course, would have preferred. Well, a lot
0: of this is, is, you know, how is this perceived by people? So there might be people who might say are technically better off, but they might not see it that way.
1: Yes, that's exactly the point. It's all about how things are perceived by people. And the way that they perceive them depends on how they are talked about. And how they are talked about is a, an important way of defining what this country is. I totally get the whole inflation piece of it, but somebody said, I think quite reasonably, if you look at the fact that our last quarter growth was over 5%, which if you remember when Trump was running for office, he promised that he was gonna have a roaring economy that was gonna have growth of 3% and he never made it to that. Here you've got Harris and Biden with over 5% and people are being like, oh, well, you know, it looks like it's not gonna go well going forward. We also have unemployment that is under 4% and generally uh, 4% uh, unemployment is seen as full employment. Any Republican who went forward with those numbers People would say, I don't even know why the Democrats are bothering to run because that's those numbers are off the charts. And yet what you see is the way it is being talked about is, oh, well, yeah, we got to worry about what's coming up and, and maybe we could do better over here. And I agree with those things, by the way. I'm talking about the way that we talk about, again, imagine if this were Trump with economic He'd growth touting, of over five percent. As,
0: as the greatest economic growth in the history of the country.
1: And so would the newspapers, you know, so would the newspapers be saying, what can a Democrat possibly offer when the plans that this president put in place have given us historic economic growth and historic low unemployment? And yet that's just not the way we're talking about it, which, again, is the whole point I was trying to make is that our democracy depends on the way we talk about these things. And that was the sort of language that rose Trump to power. And then he turned it into a movement. And now we're at a place where we recognize what's going on
3: and with luck can take that back.
0: We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back.
3: This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500.
2: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your
0: confidence journey today with Byte. I want to talk about the Supreme Court.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you write about it. And I think that uh, you write about Alito uh, a little bit, just a little, and Roberts, too. Uh, I think Roberts is the big villain. I mean, I, he did a lot of damage uh, before we had Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Alito. One thing you talk about is Citizens United, and I think that was the single worst, most damaging decision that I've seen. Let's, let's talk about that. Now, Ro- that was Roberts' chief justice. And it comes as this case about whether they can run these ads, right? Right. Which are, are ads for a film about saying how awful Hillary Clinton was. It was this group, Citizens United. And that was the case. And they they, they review the case and they say, oh, we, we're not going to decide it this term. But then they have it come back. And Roberts has basically framed it as we should allow unlimited money in, in campaigns, because, and Kennedy says this in his opinion, that, oh, well, this will be transparent, because uh, there's the internet now, and everyone will immediately be able to see all the money that's being contributed on both sides from everybody. Only trouble is, there was not, that wasn't written in the law. He wrote it in the opinion, he said there'd be transparency, but It wasn't the law. And we tried in the Senate to pass a disclosure bill. It was called the Disclosure Act. And we lost because they had 41 senators at the time and they blocked it. And because of this, we have this unlimited dark money in politics, which to me was a sea change.
1: So what were the discussions like? Can you tell us about that? Uh, the
0: floor? Yeah.
1: I mean, you... You must have been. I mean, I assume you were angry.
0: I was very angry. Did
1: you know what was happening? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. We knew what was happening. And what happened was we had had 60, and then, you know, Ted Kennedy died. Right. And then uh, we had Paul Kirk step in after a while. Then they had this special election that Scott Brown won. Right. So now they have 41 and can block us. You remember McCain Feingold? Oh, yeah. Okay. So McCain Feingold passed in. 2002 that limited the amount of money in campaigns and there were a number of republicans who said oh we don't we don't need to limit we just have need disclosure sunshine is the greatest disinfectant (laughs) and uh, they said there were 14 of them who had voted against mccain feingold and they all said no we need disclosure and so i kept track of who they were So I sat in the well of the Senate. So you're talking to the guy who knows what they were saying. And I would go up to him and say, what happened to disclose, disclose, disclose? And they would look at me like, I don't want to discuss it and say, uh, you know, they'd vote down. They'd vote no. And then I remember this was the stupidest comment I think I ever had from a colleague. I, I said to him, what about disclose, disclose, disclose? And he said, well, it doesn't make unions disclose this disclose act i said yes it does and he goes oh and then he goes well how about the new york times if the new york times runs a headline you know, supporting someone that's free advertising then that's worth a lot and it's not disclosed and i said it's in the new york times yeah and he yeah, went oh yeah and then he turned and voted down
1: so why do you think they voted that stuff down?
0: Why? I
1: mean, do, no, no. Uh. I mean, really. No, I mean, is it cowardice? Is it because the they were just in the pockets of big business? Is it that there they're stupid? Go. I mean,
0: they're in the pockets of big business, and and you know, you talk about. I think you have a statistic there about it went from three million in or five million dollars spent uh, of dark money in in two thousand eight, and then like 300 million in 2012 of dark money. There's also a lot of dark money used in 10 because this was this. And, and then you write about and very smartly and importantly about uh, what happened in 10. That was a, uh, a year in which there was a census year. So that meant they could do redistricting and 10 was a horrible, horrible election for Democrats. And a great one for Republicans, and they picked up all these seats. It was because the uh, Affordable Care Act was lied about. We lost elections in 10 and 14 and 16, I would say, because of the Affordable Care Act. you know, And in 12, you know, we didn't discuss it very much because it was not a good issue for us. And then, when McCain did the thumbs down on their horrible, horrible replacement for it, people saw what Republicans would have done and, ha- and they saw the benefits of the Affordable Care Act. So in 18, there was this amazing sweep that we had. But until then, we paid a price for the Affordable Care Act politically.
1: Well, so one of the things that, t- talking about the Supreme Court, that, that always strikes me is if you step back and you look at Roberts and the Roberts court, Roberts really built his career on trying to get rid of the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
0: Well, then that's, he accomplished that. Well,
1: exactly. And so you get 2008 and Obama's election, and then 2010, you get Citizens United, which says, yeah, we can flood the zone with, you know, all this dark money advertising. And then in 2013, you get Shelby versus Holder, which begins to gut the Voting Rights Act. And of course, that's just gotten worse and worse. And again, I think that comes down to this idea that the government should not actually work for the people. It should work for a very few wealthy individuals who are better than the rest of us and have the right to, and and as I say, maybe the duty to run everything and cut us out of it. And that longer project of getting rid of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and making sure that a very few people with a lot of money can run things seems to me to be the through line of the Supreme Court that we've got now. Although, although abortion, man, abortion's really, the Dobbs, that Dobbs decision has really been a, a game changer.
0: Yeah. And that, that seemed to me like Roberts, who I find to be incredibly smart and crafty, maybe didn't want Dobbs in the form that it was. He ultimately, I think, voted for it. But I think he wanted to have some ability to have an abortion at a, at a certain state. But no, Rob, Robert, you know, you write about Powell's memo to Justice Powell who uh, wrote that memo for the Chamber of Commerce in, it in
1: 1971 yeah yeah
0: and uh, he became a member of the court and there's been five four five four five four five four decisions for corporations all throughout the Roberts court and and, and before that favored uh, corporate America and will continue to with the six 3 court.
1: Well and it really the the thing that jumps out to me of late because there we've had two very corrupt courts in our past and I can tell you what came out with them but what really jumps out to me about those 5454s five, four, five, that you're talking about especially citizens united but also shelby versus holder is of course one of the five is um justice clarence thomas and you know I I do not know how you look at that justice right now and not say he is compromised and he should not have been able to make those decisions or to vote on those decisions, which I think brings the entire court into, into real um, disrepute is maybe not the word, but I don't understand how we can consider continue to consider it an arbiter of what the government should do when you have somebody who is making decisions for the interests of his own friends.
0: Yeah, well, too bad for you
1: yeah exactly exactly
0: <laughs> because because no you know they they put out like a new uh, ethics uh standard for them or uh, protocol, and it's not enforceable, it's not enforceable, and they don't have to recuse themselves if they don't want to on anything, even if it violates the standards
1: yeah, I was going to say that in five bucks'll get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, right
0: exactly, and uh, so no no, I mean there's nothing. There's nothing looking at the court that doesn't make you feel powerless about the court. And they're trying to extend themselves to deciding more and more of what is before the court. What is the doctrine now? The um, Major, major questions, questions Act. Yes. We're going to do a nice Which they invented. they invented. Which they
1: invented. Yeah. And what that says is that Congress cannot delegate to a member of the executive branch that is an agency decision-making over major questions.
0: Yes. And it's kind of undoing the Chevron doctrine, which basically says that these agencies have the expertise to make these decisions. So the Supreme Court now has said that, well, not in major questions. So they decided against the EPA in EPA versus West Virginia, um, which was that EPA doesn't have the right to regulate CO2 emissions from coal-fired plants. So this is them usurping a lot of power from Congress.
1: Yeah, it's really astonishing uh, because Congress is pretty clear about what they were going to do. And now they're saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Which again, if you think about the structure of our government, erasing the majority's voice out of the House of Representatives and out of Congress and replacing it instead with the voices of people who were confirmed by senators who represent significantly less Than half of the American people is a real perversion of our democracy. And again, in the longer term, to me the question is, will the American people put up with the idea of being ruled by a by an extremist political minority? And the truth is, the answer to that in the long term simply is no. I mean, this these situations do not last. The question is, when does it stop, and how much damage is done before it stopped?
0: Well, uh, that leads us up to this next election. I know that you don't predict things. You don't talk about what's going forward in that way, right?
1: So historians are prophets of the past, not of the future. Right. So I am very solid if it's already happened. I have guesses about what will happen in the future. Um, I will say that that I still firmly believe that the vast majority of Americans, of all parties, believe in the liberal consensus. We want a government that does the things that you and I identified. But what we have now is a situation where you have this, this political minority, and it's an extremist political minority has sewn up what I'm calling the nodes of democracy, the, the undemocratic pieces of our system. So the, the Republican-dominated states, for example, uh, now are so gerrymandered and sometimes have uh, partisans in the place where they're supposed to be counting ballots, for example. That's a problem. The Electoral College is a problem they're in places where they're able to suppress votes or to make votes in favor of that liberal consensus not count as much as the votes of extremists, that's what worries me. Because in a free and fair vote, I have absolutely no doubt, really absolutely no doubt. And and that's based not just on some like, oh, I have faith in this. It's based literally on the polls, all the polls that talk about what Americans want. I have no doubt that Americans would vote for a government that would protect democracy and would protect the liberal consensus. But in this moment in which these extremists have sewn up so many pieces of the actual mechanics of our democracy, that's what keeps me up at night.
0: And that's what was so toxic about Shelby County, which uh, Shelby County overturned the Justice Department reviewing any change in elections. Uh, election law in all these places that formerly were uh, prejudiced and biased against uh, black and other, you know, voters who would vote Democrat, right?
1: Well, that and the Supreme Court's decision that it was not going to review uh, partisan gerrymandering, that that belonged to the states. And then when you threw it back to the states, then, you know, of course, the Republicans can dominate the state courts and say, oh, no, no, it's perfectly fine with us that the state has been so gerrymandered, like North Carolina, for example, where the Democrats simply can't win. You know, that's not democracy. And that's a real problem because right now lawyers are finding ways to challenge those decisions because they are not democratic decisions but the tools for the federal government to say hey no you really can't make it so that even though you're a 50-50 state you know, the Republicans win you know 74% of the of the seats losing that tool is a really really big deal
0: and uh, a lot of that happened in 2010 after you know the first dark money's in the election Republicans Win the states because the Affordable Care Act has so been so lied about and so unpopular at that point, and we take states like Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, and those states are just gerrymandered up the wazoo, and they still are, or at least Wisconsin is, and uh, and Ohio is become a, a Republican state. So um, that and the Voting Rights Act have enormous uh, have had an enormous impact and I I I blame Roberts so there. Well, this has been great.
1: Yeah, it is such a, it's so much fun to get in the wheeze on this stuff cuz you know, those of us who care about the details, there may be not that many of us, and it's a pleasure to get to talk to somebody who was there and can tell us what it was like.
0: Yeah. That that um <laughs> I'll never forget him saying, "Well, the New York Times doesn't have to disclose." <laughs>
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Thank you so much, Heather.
1: Super. It's a real pleasure. If I can ever do anything useful, let me know. And I'm always happy to do these.
0: Well, you do something useful. I, I, um, you don't work hard enough, though. <laughs> I think that. Yeah. I think that uh, you got to start taking your extra time and do something with it.
1: Do you know honestly? Um, I mean, that's part of being a historian. I look at how close we are to losing something that so many people have fought so hard for for so long. And if it means that I'm a little short on sleep for a while, it's a small enough price to pay. So, you know, I hope that we sweep everything in 2024 so I can just sit in my kayak and eat M&Ms. But until then, if it means that I work a little bit too hard,
0: I'm happy to do it. Well, well, thank you. We all thank you for that, and it's, it's a gift. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.